Our next section of Psalm 119 begins at verse 25. It's centered around the Hebrew letter Dalet. And I think that the opening of this section reminds us that this psalm, in all probability, it can't be proved, but it's just the feeling at least I have, and I suppose other commentators have from it, was that it wasn't all written out at one sitting or over a couple days where the psalmist said, ooh, I'm going to write an acrostic psalm and do these wonderful things with the Hebrew alphabet. It seems to have been written, in my mind, over a long period of time, over years of meditation on God's word, where maybe he would just, in a particular season of his life, meditate on a certain aspect. Because as we look at the beginning here of this section, the fourth section, around the letter Dalet, it begins here at verse 25, where he's in a very interesting circumstance. It seems different than the previous section. Notice here, verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. Well, that's pretty strong language, don't you think? My soul clings to the dust is using a strong image to indicate that he felt near death in his current crisis. Doth, doth, dust is the place of death. It's the place of mourning. It's the place of humiliation. And so dust, if he felt like his soul was clinging to the dust, it felt like his soul was clinging to death. And that was the idea of his complaint. This is no little surface problem. This is something that strikes at his innermost spirit. His soul is stuck to the dust. And it's not a case of a casual, of an accidental falling into the dust. But it's a continual problem here. It's cleaving, it's clinging to the dust. Therefore he cries out in the second part of verse 25, Revive me according to your word. From this low place, the prayer for revival came. The psalmist prayed for life and vitality to be restored to him. And he asked that it would happen according to your word. This shows us that true spiritual revival comes from a place of genuine spiritual need and lowliness. True revival in its biblical and its historical expressions. It's marked by a shamed awareness of sin and an urgency to confess and make things right. As will be explained in the following verses. The psalmist knew exactly what he needed. I like what Charles Spurgeon said at this point. He said, one would have thought that he would have asked for comfort or upraising. But he knew that these would come out of increased life. And therefore he sought that blessing which is at the root of the rest. When a person is depressed in spirit, weak, and bent towards the ground, the main thing is to increase his stamina and put more life into him. Then his spirit revives. Therefore, the psalmist prayed, revive me according to your word. And by the way, that phrase, revive me according to your word, reminds us that God uses his word in bringing revival. And that works that claim to be revival can be measured according to his word. Notice how verse 26, he continues on the thought. He says, I've declared my ways and you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts. So shall I meditate on your wonderful works. The idea here, when he says, I have declared my ways, it's a beautiful idea. The sense is that he told God everything about himself and his life. He confessed fully and freely before God. 
Friends, do you know the release in your soul that happens when you do this? When you talk to God, knowing he already knows everything, but telling him it. Now, this may seem very strange to you. Some of you may have an intellectual barrier to this. You say, well, why should I tell God if he already knows it? What, have you never been a parent of a small child? (laughs) Have you never known exactly the naughty thing that your child did? But you wanted so much the child to tell it to you because you knew it would be good for them and it would help in restoring relationship with them, right? You're very aware of this as a parent or at least maybe you've known it as a child. But you know this dynamic. And this is why there's something so liberating in just talking to God about everything about yourself. Now, friends, don't do this in the prayer meeting. If you do this in the prayer meeting, everybody else will just be waiting for you to stop. But do this in your own prayer closet, right? Pour out your soul before the Lord. I've declared my ways and you answered me. Again, I think Spurgeon says wonderfully here. He says, can each of us now say in this sense, I have declared my ways to the Lord. For this should be done not only at our first coming to him, but continually throughout the whole of our life. We should look over each day and sum up the errors of the day and say, I have declared my ways, my naughty ways, my wicked ways, my wandering ways, my backsliding ways, my cold, indifferent ways, my proud ways. But why do we do this? Again, make me understand the way of your precepts. You see, the psalmist understood that he needed more than knowledge. He also needed understanding. And with both knowledge and understanding, he would meditate on God's wonderful works. I need this, Lord. I need you to teach me. I need you to teach me my ways. Lord, would you be my instructor so I can learn all about these things? But even in the midst of this, he's still struggling. Look at it, verse 28. My soul melts from heaviness. Strengthen me according to your word. I hope as we look at this verse by verse, I hope many of you are writing little notations in your Bible or scribbling notes to yourself. Yes, put this one on the bathroom mirror. Yes, pray this one often. Isn't this a marvelous verse for you to pray again and again? Is there a single soul in this room? You do not need to pray this prayer or you never have or you never will where you cry out before God, my soul melts from heaviness. Strengthen me according to your word. The problem surrounding the psalmist made his soul heavy, feeling like it would melt. He felt that he had no strength, no stability within, but he knew that God could strengthen him according to his word. He knew that the strength would come from the word of God and according to the word of God. He's bowed down. He's overwhelmed. He needs the strength in his life. He doesn't ask God for pity, but in a determined way, he says, Lord, I'm going to seek you and your word and trust that you will strengthen me according to your word. And then he comes to a beautiful place of resolution. Look at it here in verse 29. He says, remove from me the way of lying and grant me your law graciously. I have chosen the way of truth. Your judgments I have laid before me. The psalmist sensed the common temptation to lie. Therefore, he cried out, remove from me the way of lying. And he cries out again in verse 30, I have chosen the way of truth. Isn't this a common temptation that comes to us, right? So often we find it easy when we're faced with an unpleasant truth to give to another person. When I say unpleasant, I'm not talking about those. Oh, how shall I put this? 
a, a, a socially graceful lie, right? Look, if, if, if a woman asks you, how do I look in this? You know, you, could, you, you have the, the permission to, to speak in an honorable, gracious way and not in a cruel way. But no, no, no. I'm not speaking about social graces. I'm talking about these situations where we know very well, right? We don't share the truth because we don't want to, because it might reflect poorly on us. And so the psalmist knew the danger of that. And he says, no, remove from me the way of lying. And then later on in verse 30, I've chosen the way of truth. He was determined to choose the way of truth. And how did he stay in that determination? Because he says, your judgments I have laid before me. This is how he chose the way of truth. Because he was in close relationship with the word of God. Friends, people don't choose the right way by chance. They do it by a determined choice. You must choose it and continue to choose it or you'll wander away from it. And therefore, he concludes this little section in two glorious verses. Look at it here, verse 31 and 32. He says, I cling to your testimonies. Oh, Lord, do not put me to shame. I will run the course of your commandments for you shall enlarge my heart. The psalmist understood that that if he were to give himself entirely to God, he had to cling to God's word as a shipwrecked man clings to a floating plank of wood in the sea. Then he could trust God and God would not allow him to be put to shame. That is a well-placed confidence. And so in the very beginning of the section, did you notice it in verse 25? What does he cling to in verse 25? He clings to the dust. What does he cling to in verse 31? He's clinging to God's testimonies. It's a much better clinging, right? In the first few verses of the section, he's barely alive. But now towards the end, he's joyfully running with all of his strength in the race that God's word sets before him. And the clinging of this verse connects very well with the choosing of the previous verse. Friends, first you choose the right thing and then you cling to it with all of your might. And then before he goes on, he says, I will run the course of your commandments. Now, after beginning very low in the dust, now the psalmist is running. He's moved in a beautiful progression from confessing to choosing to clinging to running. And then he finishes it off beautifully in verse 32 where he says, for you shall enlarge my heart. It's a beautiful theme that's touched on often in the Psalms. Not only the greatness of God's word, but the acute sense of weakness and dependence he felt upon God. He had to have his heart enlarged. That is, his heart had to be made bigger and stronger and more steadfast. And his confidence is that God would do it in his life through his word. Now, I understand, certainly I'm no doctor and I really know next to nothing about medicine. But I understand to have an enlarged heart medically is a bad condition. Spiritually, it's wonderful. And I think that this is a problem in many Christian lives, is it not? Oh, it's not like some strange southeastern island where the, the, the vicious natives would shrink heads. Instead, many Christians have the problem of a shrunken heart, is it not? What we need to do is to come to God and come to his word and say, Oh Lord, enlarge my heart. Would you make that your prayer here this evening? Would you come before God and say, God, I need a bigger heart before you. 
I need you to fill my heart with the bigness of your son, Jesus Christ. I need to be filled with the fullness of God. Do that in my life and that will enlarge your heart. Father, that is our prayer. Here we are, Lord. And I suppose that even the biggest hearted person among us, they need their heart made larger before you. We think of how great your heart is, Lord. And we ask that you would give us the same greatness of heart. Oh, Lord, deliver us from having a small heart before you. Instead, God, give us a great heart. Lord, I pray for the many here this evening who may be feeling in their soul that they cling to the dust. Lord, won't you move them to the place where they're clinging to your word and then they're running joyfully in the course set before them. Thank you, Lord. Enlarge our heart to do this. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.